Gosh Pods, paediatric educational podcast series from Great Ormond Street Hospital. Gosh Pods are brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Welcome back to the Great Ormond Street Educational Podcasts. My name is Sarah Warreich and today we're joined by Jonathan Smith, who's one of our consultant anaesthetists at Great Ormond Street Hospital. Welcome, Jonathan. Hello. Would you like to just tell us what you specialise in? So I'm an anaesthetic consultant at Great Ormond Street um, and we specialise in anaesthesia for children of all ages for all specialities. Great, welcome. So today we're going to be talking about apneas with a focus on post-operative apneas. Okay, good. Well, I think that um, it's quite an interesting topic to talk about because we know that apnea is a particular problem and potentially lethal complication of anaesthesia in children who are um, ex-premature children and uh, neonates in particular. So this is something we are quite interested in because there are some operations and surgeries that do need to happen in smaller children. Um, The operation that's been most widely studied is inguinal hernia repair, and this is associated with extra maturity as well, so it is very relevant to anaesthesia um, and the post-operative recovery process. Um, It's also quite nice to study because it's um, a quite consistent operation um, with particularly um, uh, set boundaries for the point of view of timing-wise and surgical technique. So it's consistent between patients um, surgically. So that's what the, the one that's been studied particularly. Okay. What's the definition of apnea? So that's interesting because we there isn't really a consistent definition. Um, it does vary between papers, and so which is one of the difficulties is trying to actually get a consensus on the um, avoidance of apneas the definition is not there. Now, the most recent, largest paper that was done um, defined apnea as a cessation of breathing for 15 seconds, um, with a caveat that actually if there was a apnea or a breathing stopped for 10 seconds with a significant desaturation, which was defined as down to 80% oxygen saturations or bradycardia, then that would be a definition of an apnea in, in their paper. So, but most places would take between 15 and 20 seconds as an apnea. And so what things should we be looking out for when we're diagnosing apnea? So, well, the diagnosis of apnea is also actually, and how you diagnose it is, is also controversial. I mean, there are a number of ways of diagnosing apnea, um, and the incidence is very variable depending on how you actually diagnose it. So a very big poor data analysis showed that the rate of apnea was between 5% and 49% postoperatively between institutions, depending on how you actually look for it. Now, if you use a very complex um, sleep study setup where you have thoracic impedance, end tidal CO2, um, nasal thermistry, uh, then you actually use, that is very sensitive and you can pick up apneas in babies, um, probably up to 20 to 30%. Um, most places don't have that access to that technology, and we certainly don't put that on all the babies having operations here at Great Ormond Street. Um, most places would use either an apnea mat, which actually works by movement sens- um, sensation, or just a, a nurse by the bedside and saturations. And most of the HDUs here, looking at children post really just have a, an, an ECG and a SATS probe and a nurse by the bedside or a nurse in the actual space. Um, and that normally picks up about apnea rates of between 5 to 6%. So... Who's at risk of becoming apneic postoperatively? So 
I think all newborns and up to the, um, four four weeks of age are at risk of apneas, and that's because they have an immature uh, central nervous system, so the respiratory centre is immature. Um, they are much more sensitive to environmental factors, uh, any drugs that we give, residual effects, anaesthesia, neuromuscular blockades. Um, and if that is compounded by other problems, for example, central nervous um, uh, disease, um, sepsis, um, prematurity is the biggest cause of um, postoperative apnea or the biggest association of postoperative apnea. Um, metabolic conditions, neuromuscular conditions can all increase the risk of apnea postoperatively. Um, the things that we see are we're the most concerned about, um, and the studies have shown that the, the biggest associations are children who are ex-premature, um, and that is there are increased risks of apneas up to about 60 weeks post-conceptual age. Um, and at that point, when they're about 60 weeks post-conceptual age, the risk of an apnea uh, and in the poor data is less than 1% postoperatively. Um, other associations do increase apneas, so actually having apneas recurrently is, is directly related to having postoperative apnea, um, as is the, most in, the, the only independent thing we can find in the data, um, in the literature at the moment, is, is um, anemia. So a hematocrit of less than 30, which is about a hemoglobin of 10, is directly associated with having apneas. And so, from an anaesthetic point of view, um, how might we manage apneas postoperatively? Well, the, the best thing to do is not to do the operation until they are actually bigger and more robust. And so, if you look at um, certainly inguinal hernia repairs, can you can you delay the operation? Mm. Um, and certainly for reducible. So this is this is preventing apneas. Yeah, preventing apneas. Yeah. So it's, it's by avoiding avoiding the anaesthetic to start off with and waiting for them to get a little bit bigger. Um, Having a, I think having a policy within departments where you actually wait for the children to, to reach a certain post-conceptual age actually is quite important, and that decreases your incidence of apnea. So I think internationally, most people would want to wait until about 60 weeks post-conceptual age before they actually do an elective operation such as um, inguinal hernia repair, um, and that decreases the risk, as we say, to less than 1%. And aesthetically-wise... Um, if you, uh, what we can do is try and do an opioid reduced anaesthetic, if you're going to do a general anaesthetic, or you can do a regional anaesthetic. Now there was a large trial published a couple of years ago called a GAS trial, where they randomised children having inguinal hernia repairs to a regional technique compared to a general anaesthetic technique. Um, and that was quite interesting data there. Now that was the background of that study was actually looking at neurodevelopmental outcomes because of the interest there is currently with a neurodevelopmental outcome and general anaesthetic agents. But the secondary outcome they're looking at is the rate of apneas. And they showed that a regional anaesthetic technique did significantly reduce the rate of earlier apneas, which is an apnea within the first 30 minutes of regional anaesthetic. But it didn't reduce late apneas, which is up to the period of 12 hours post post-anesthetic, which is what they stopped the study at 12 hours. So a regional technique is something that you could look at doing if surgeons are actually amenable to it and the child is able to tolerate it. Um, we, didn't, we didn't, and a great much we didn't involve ourselves in the study because actually our hernias are done laparoscopically, so that, was, yeah, that means you can't do a regional technique. And the reason why they do laparoscopic hernias here is because actually there is quite a high rate of the 
contralateral um, hernia being open, so they close it prophylactically, so the child then doesn't have to come back for another repair later on. Okay. Um, so that could be something that uh, confounds the actually use of regional anesthesia. Right. Um, interestingly, in the study, that actually the, the the rate of conversion from regional anesthesia to general anesthetic was about nineteen percent in that study. Mm. So, in the best world in the world, if you do try and do a regional anesthetic. Um, about 20% of your kids are going to have to have a general anaesthetic anyway. Right. So that's something that, practically speaking, whether you want to consider trying a regional anaesthetic or not. Um, so I think if you do do a general anaesthetic, having an opioid-free or reduced opioid technique would be very happy, so you avoid drugs like fentanyl or morphine. Mm -hmm. So doing a general anaesthetic com combined with a regional anaesthetic, like a caudal, is quite a nice technique. And it means that with the modern anaesthetic agents, which do wear off pretty quickly, um, you can leave the child comfortable afterwards with an opioid-free technique. So that should reduce your rates of apneas. Um, and that's pretty much it from our point of view. We can't really find anything else to do. So what we do is then you have to monitor them afterwards. So very close monitoring for the first 30 minutes mm -hmm. and then monitoring for the first 12 hours. Um, Clearly, screening is important, so you want to avoid children that have got significant anemia. So, as I said, they have a mass group less than 30, and be very careful about children that have got pre existing apneas or have had apneas in the past. Um, and I think these are the children we do look at very carefully anyway. Would you recommend a transfusion if their haemoglobin was 10, for example? Well, Ted is on the borderline, and I think it depends on how urgent the surgery would be. I think we would have a discussion with the surgeons and maybe they could um, monitor uh, monitor and uh, treat that anemia with things like oral iron mm -hmm. rather than giving them actual transfusion themselves. Okay. Now, I think if there was very major surgery they were coming for something other than hernia repair, then you'd probably consider transfusing them up okay. right, if the surgery was urgent. So if we break this down and take it to the bedside, so what would you suggest are ways to managing a post-operative patient who might be at risk of apnea perhaps in a place that's not a specialty hospital? Well, I think, the, first of all, they need to be in the post-anesthetic care unit, so a recovery unit for the first 30 minutes, where they have very intense monitoring, so a nurse by the bedside, you've got an ECG pulse oximeter on the child, and there's access to resuscitation equipment, oxygen, and trained personnel very quickly. So they're there for 30 minutes, and once they're awake and moving and back to the state they were before, then actually on the, the bedside, on the wards, you want them there for about 12 hours. So what most district general hospitals do, or our special hospitals, was get the smallest children in on the list first. And if you're going to do a hernia repair in a baby who is, for example, sort of post-conceptual age 60, that child would be admitted on the day of surgery and be put first on the list. So the operation would be finished, um, hopefully by 9 to 9.30 in the morning, and then they could stay on the ward in the daytime when there's a high ratio of staff up until the early evening and then at that point the, the incidence of apnea the risk of apnea is very very low um, so essentially it's, it's like that human factors issue with them having the amount of people around um, a lot of staff um, and so therefore you can have the staff ratio so you can actually monitor them properly. Um, some people have discussed about the role, role of caffeine um, that the paediatricians and neonatologists use quite a lot. So caffeine or, you know, um, has been looked at in the Cochrane review um, and 
the results are not quite, are not clear. So the Cochrane Review couldn't recommend the use of, ca of caffeine or the introduction of caffeine into a child having surgery to try and reduce the rate of outwards. Um, but what it does say is pretty vague about it, and I think that most of it is because the evidence is poor, is that actually if they're on caffeine for apneas already, then you'd probably be sensible to carry that caffeine on perioptically, um, but not to introduce it to children who are not already on caffeine. So that's, that's what they've said about that. So it's not something that a lot of institutions institute for prevention of apneas uh, perioptically. Okay. And is there anything else that we might consider um, in the management or prevention of apneas? No, I think I think just very good perioptive care of the child. And so we're looking at packages of care at the moment to try and reduce all complications and apnea just falls into that thing. So the starvation guidelines have been changed relatively recently to encourage clear fluids. And that includes clear fluids with um, sugar-containing uh, additives right up until an hour before the time of the surgery. So we would encourage somebody bringing their, their baby in for a hernia repair to drink water or water with some added sucrose right up to an hour before we start. And that clearly keeps the, keeps the hydration levels high, keeps the blood sugar levels normal, and, and leaves you with a much happier child with, with a, and there's no increased risk of aspiration in a normal child from that. So that's one thing we can do. The other thing, sensible things like keeping the child warm, so bringing the child in and keeping them dressed right up until the last minute so we don't have babies lying around the ward in gowns, getting chilly, and using the warming apparatus we have within theatres. At the moment, we've changed in the last couple of years to warming every child periodically, which has probably marginal effects on apnea, but as a package, it's quite nice, but it does affect things like restorative infection rates. Uh, so that's something else that we're doing. I think thinking very carefully about intraoperative fluid management in these children is very important so they don't get dehydrated. Um, and then using an opioid-free technique if possible. Great. So we've talked about the definition of apnea, some of the causes and risk factors for post-operative apnea and how we might manage it. Is there anything else that you'd like to add before we conclude the podcast? No, I think that's pretty much it. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Gosh Pods. If you would like more information on courses and educational opportunities offered by Gosh Learning Academy, please visit the website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy or follow us on Twitter at Gosh Learn Acad.